It's Thursday, January the 26th, and you're very welcome to this very special edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. We were in the Irish Times building on Tara Street in Dublin today for this, the first episode of the podcast, to be recorded in front of an audience of actual real people. Our panel was the distinguished political scientist Theresa Reedy, Irish Times political editor Pat Leahy, and according to the opinion of polls, but who believes them anymore, the most popular political leader in the country, Leo Varadkar. I asked Leo Varadkar first how concerned he was about the election of Donald Trump and his behaviour so far in the presidency. I'd be concerned, I suppose, initially that um, it does appear that he intends to follow through on his campaign promises and potentially govern, potentially govern as, uh, as he promised he would, uh, which could mean restrictions on trade. And I'm one of those people who believes in globalism, believes that free trade on balance makes all of us better off, so restrictions of free trade won't be good for the world. Um, whether it's credible or not is pressing ahead with proposals to build a wall between the United States and Mexico, which um, of course will damage relations between those two countries, um, which can't be in anyone's interests. Uh, and then I suppose in addition to that, um, where some of us may have hoped or expected that once the election was out of the way and the inauguration was out of the way, uh, that, uh, as is often the case in politics, uh, the office makes the man, and that um, his temperament and thin skin would become better and thicker. Uh, and uh, that doesn't appear to have happened either, given the activity on Twitter. So, yeah, absolute concerns, but the reality is he is the President of the United States, and our uh, bonds with the United States are ones that go back for centuries. Um, and they have to be able to withstand any presidency or any government because they're economic and they're cultural. And we need to do our best to uh, work with the new administration and the new president. Um, but that doesn't mean pandering to them or sucking up to them. And that's something we're not going to do. So what does not pandering to the United States mean for a, a small country with a long historical relationship with the United States? Yeah, I suppose, suck, I suppose pandering is probably the wrong word. We've never pandered to the United States. But in the past, there have been extremely warm relationships and there are issues that maybe we didn't need to raise. What we'll have to do in, in our engagement uh, with the president, with the White House and his administration uh, is something more than smiles and shamrocks. And it's always something more than smiles and shamrocks, but we'll have to talk about issues of common interest, for example, the undocumented Irish uh, visas, things like J-1 visas, which I know will be important to, to people in this audience, uh, work visas. Aviation is going to be a big issue of discussion um, because we control almost half the, air, the airspace between here and America, and we don't know if you going to take on that in terms of open skies. Um, and we're also going to have to raise issues uh, that are of more global concern, Obviously, any attempt to resile from commitments that America has made on climate change, we'll have to take a dim view of and be straight up about that. Uh, and then if there are um, human rights issues that need to be raised, well, then it, we have an obligation, I believe, to raise those issues. Um, there was the suggestion in the last day or two, I think, uh, from the president that, um, that torture works. Um, it doesn't, and even if it did, uh, we couldn't possibly condone it. And we've signed UN conventions on that, and all those things are going to have to feature in bilateral discussions, and that'll be, make it different to the kind of discussions that would have happened with President Clinton or Obama. Pat, everything that the Minister's mentioned there, uh, trade, human rights, uh, international relations, um, they're all bad news from the point of view of, I think, probably most, most of the allies of the United States in terms of what's panned out over the last few days. There's no question but that many of the things that Donald Trump has said he will do are bad news not just for the rest of the world but 
particularly for Ireland. Uh, I'm not surprised, really, that he has started the way that he has started, because I think if you look back at the pattern of his behaviour throughout the primaries and then the general election campaign in the United States, you know, when he became a serious contender for the nomination, people said that he would move to the... uh, you know, the, to the to the centre, or he would move to a more mainstream Republican uh, Republican position. He didn't, and he prospered. They said when he won the nomination that he would tack to the uh, tack to the centre to attract the centrist voters that conventional wisdom has said always win American uh, presidential ele- uh, elections. He didn't, and he prospered. So I think that when he, uh, you know, and then when he became uh, when he became president elect, having uh, won the election, people said he was strike a more moderating tone. He didn't. And so now I think it's not at all surprising that um, he has begun in exactly the way that he said um, uh, he, he would begin. And I think, you know, those of us, whether in, in, in media or in, uh, in governments, who are trying to figure out the likely track of uh, of the next the next couple of years. I think what we need to do is go back and look at what Donald Trump said he would do because he is likely to go and uh, he's likely to go and do that. Is that not kind of terrifying? Uh, it is vaguely. I mean, I, I find it by turns kind of screamingly hilarious and also terrifying um, if those two things are not completely uh, incompatible. But, um, you know, I think for the Irish government, you know, there are, there are obvious, you know, more general, medium-term considerations such as, you know, if, as he says he will, Donald Trump uh, withdraws to a more protectionist stance in terms of trade, and trade is the one thing he has been utterly consistent on since the mid-1980s when he spent $100,000 taking out a full-page advertisement in, uh, in the New York Times. God be with the days when that was the sort of money you got for ads in the paper. But, um, uh, you know, when he warned about America being taken for a ride by, at that stage, Japan, by free trade, uh, uh, by free trade agreements, he's been utterly consistent in that. If there's a consistent theme in his approach to international relations, to defense, to trade, it's that America has been taken for a ride and he's going to put that, uh, he's going to put a stop to that. I think that the only logical outcome of that is that there is a slowdown in global trade that hurts free trade countries all over the world and Ireland is the most or one of the most globalised countries in the world so it seems logical to me that there is a significant effect um, on Ireland in terms of at the most basic level of in terms of tax receipts that will uh, pretty quickly I suspect narrow the scope of budgetary freedom that Leo and his uh, that Leo and his colleagues um, currently have. So that will be an issue for the Irish government. The final thing I would say is, like one of the other things that Trump said in recent days was, or our indicator, his officials indicated in recent days was that the practice of extraordinary rendition uh, might return. I think if that was going to happen, and uh, I think it would raise questions for the Irish government pretty quickly about the use of Shannon by US military. Indeed, although it's a moot point because his Secretary of Defence doesn't seem too too keen on that, and I'm not sure if the other members of his administration. We have to see how a lot of these things pan out, including sure. the relationship with Congress. But before, and I will return to the question of the challenges facing the the Irish government, but to you, Theresa, obviously Trump's success is also the uh, most prominent manifestation of a political movement, if it can be described as such, which has uh, become increasingly prominent across many democracies in, in Europe and the United States, which is loosely defined as, as populism. Um, and 
we're now seeing for the first time, I suppose, uh, a, a major democracy uh, where a, a populist figure has, has taken power and is in charge. I mean, I, we've seen certain leaders in, in Central Europe, certainly, but this is, this is a different order of magnitude. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we have to bear in mind when we're evaluating all of his actions in his first week in office is that he actually said he was going to do all of these things and now he's actually going about doing them. Now, whether he can fulfil his entire policy platform, well, a lot of it is internally contradictory, so it's unlikely, but uh, he, he is delivering for a group of people who... There are myriad of explanations that are out there for, for where the Trump phenomenon came from, but one of them is to do with the fact that there was gridlock in Washington and that people don't think politics works anymore, uh, and they were looking for somebody who was capable of taking decisive action and changing the system, whatever that might be, even if that was tearing up trade uh, policies, if it was tearing up human rights policies, and to some extent he's delivering for that cohort of people um, that uh, that really wanted to see something change. Now you have to juxtapose that against the other line of argument that's coming out of the United States at the moment, which is that um, US institutions, democratic institutions, are hundreds of years old, they're strong, they're solid, and they're going to be capable of uh, constraining his most outrageous, uh, his most outrageous uh, Actions. So there's there's an interesting kind of kind of tug and pull uh, in there. In terms of the more more broader question about um, where this kind of anti-elite, anti-politics movement is is coming from, we're certainly seeing the rise of um, a, a kind of anti-establishment or populist movement. But actually, uh, one of the kind of world's leading experts on on populism, Kazmuda, was writing in the uh, New York Times today, and he was saying we have to be very careful about taking all of these people, grouping them together, and calling them kind of the, the wave of populism, because actually uh, internally within that group there's huge diversity. Uh, and even last week when uh, the leaders of several of the kind of radical right parties were, were meeting in Germany, some of the, he, the point he's making is that actually you can see that there's huge ideological differences uh, between them in terms of how far they're willing to go in terms of the repudiation of the existing system. He said you've got this bizarre combination of people who are uh, in the case of UKIP, free marketeers, uh, neoliberals, um, unrepentant capitalists, but on the other hand you have groups in continental Europe including Marine Le Pen for example who has really um, actually stolen the clothes of the far left to a great extent and is now talking about protecting the welfare state but in this context of doing it of course for uh, French citizens and, and so the, the kind of idea that they can all be grouped together uh, into this kind of one coherent group I think is very, uh, is very difficult but at the same time there's certainly a repudiation of uh, the existing order taking place, and we see that across the advanced uh, industrial world. And what, one of the things that, that's interesting is that we are seeing, particularly among kind of working class, uh, working class groups and working class voters, the sense that, that the current model is not delivering uh, for them, and they very much feel like they're outside of the existing uh, the existing order, and that the kind of politics of centre left and centre right is really the politics of the same. Uh, that there is very little that differentiates these parties now, and that's partly as a consequence of 
the arrival in politics of people like Gerhard Schroeder and uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, who moved the centre-left parties much more to the, to the centre. Uh, and they're now somewhat more indistinguishable from the centre-right. So you have the politics of the same, which is the politics of the kind of status quo. Uh, and then you have these radical alternative offerings coming from the far left for the far right, which are the kind of uniting idea behind them is that they want to overthrow the elite, they want to change the system. But what they're talking about replacing with it with is very variable. Some want to leave the European Union, some want to fix the European Union. Uh, some are more concerned with questions about the welfare state. There are certainly resonances of migration in the background with a lot of these movements, but they are not the same, uh, although perhaps it's a, it's a similar place that's kind of giving rise to them. And I suppose underlying those, um, Leo, is that, that that instinct to blow things up, which we heard from a lot of people, for example, who voted um, in favour of Brexit um, about six months ago, a lot of people ascribe that instinct to underlying economic changes which are happening in industrialised Western countries that automation, globalisation and a number of other factors have left a, a large tranche of people behind who now feel dislocated or not represented by, by current political structures. Yeah, there's definitely definitely elements of that. Um, you can certainly see that in the result in, in the Midwest states, you know, which swung Republican for the first time in a presidential election a very long time in northern parts of England, where um, people who have been or feel they have been left behind by the new economy um, and aren't don't have the skills to get the new jobs in the new economy uh, voted heavily for Trump and very heavily for Brexit. Um, but there's also other things as well. You know, there's uh, certainly in the United States and to that extent in Britain uh, a nationalism. Uh, a belief, which is a, a whole different thing entirely, a, a feeling that um, places like Britain and America were greater at a different time at a certain point in the past, um, which um, which they're going to find very disappointing. You know, the United States was at its strongest in the late 40s and 50s after Europe and Japan and the then Soviet Union had been pummeled to the ground after war. They're never going to be able to restore themselves to, to that level of importance. And there's a hankering back uh, for the British Empire. Um, and, you know, part of the undertone to Theresa May's speech last week in Lancaster House, even though it was talk, talk about a global Britain, it also sounded a little bit like, you know, let's try and rebuild a British Empire, which, which obviously is not... Which is a long shot, I think we can all not, agree. Not achievable. Not, <laughs> not it was this idea again... Hopefully you know, from our it was, but, it was, but it was this, it was this idea again that, you know, a country of 60 million people in a country of... in a world of 8,000 million people can somehow... Be a great world player again. It's not. It's not but, realistic. But, but, you know? but that sense of loss, so, which, which but, probably but, exists know, to some but, extent but, but in I'm France saying, as well. That's what I was saying, though. But, in, in, in that wave towards populism, there are a number of strains. There is a nationalist strain. Sure. Um, there's an anti-immigrant, somewhat racist strain. There is a strain that's about um, people who've, who've who've been the losers of globalism. But they're not all the same. So, in the same way, Street talks about the parties being different, the coalition that comes behind them. Um, uh, is actually different too, and you have uh, then again America. Of course, you know, you know, you know, um, uh, uh, white white people and males. And if you look at the figures for U.S. presidential elections, I can't remember the last time a Democratic candidate won the majority of white males. It was way back. It probably was Carter. Hmm. And there's something to be said in that as well of people who feel that their position in society has changed and maybe don't like it all. Well, I suppose in American politics, it goes all the way back to Nixon's southern strategy, doesn't it, Pat? I think after the Lyndon Johnson introduced the Great Society and, and civil rights in, in, in the South, the Republicans moved to, yeah. to get those southern Democrat voters. You know? For sure, and, yeah. Uh, but I think what has turbocharged it is the... Um, uh, and, and, and 
you know, what has made this. I mean, many of those dynamics were true before the rise of this current wave of populism uh, in, in Western democracies, but what has turbocharged them is the experience of the financial crash and the, the you know, the dawning of the, uh, the widely held idea uh, amongst large swathes of the population that actually the, uh, the political classes, their political leadership of their country was not operating the country with their interests in mind, that, they, uh, that the political leadership of their country was skewed towards uh, an elite, minority groups, whatever, and that's one of the, you know, the classic tropes of populists is to focus on a group, be they the elite, be they, you know, racial or ethnic minorities, uh, be they the political establishment, call them what you will, that are frustrating the interests of, uh, of the, the wider population. And, you know, while there are great differences, of course, between different types of populists, the thing that they all have in common is that they suggest simple solutions to what are actually, in fact, difficult and complex problems, and they suggest as a reason that, that the reason these simple solutions are not being um, are not being implemented to the good of the common people is because of corrupt elites, and yeah. that is. I mean, all populisms are based on a conspiracy theory to some degree or another, which is not to say that sometimes there may not be some truth in that conspiracy theory, and that elites may feather their well, own conspiracies nest. exist, whether whether yeah. uh, you know whether whether you know they are intended or are are otherwise. Um, you know, I I, I I think it's interesting because you know we're having this discussion about international uh, international affairs, you know, without any reference to, you know, these things, you know, that, that, that may be present in our own politics. And I don't know maybe what Leo thinks of this, but I think that strain is there in our politics. It would be unusual to think that Ireland is completely different, uh, you know, in, uh, to all uh, countries that are, uh, that are similar in many ways. And I wonder, I think one of the questions for those of us who, who, who report on politics, and I suppose certainly for people who practice it as well, will be how our politics deals with these dynamics as they manifest themselves over the coming years. Well, a question that immediately arises to me, and you're the political scientist, Theresa, is why is there no populist right in Ireland right now? Uh, well, there's a lot of different, uh, I suppose, arguments advanced for, for that. One of the, the first things I would say is that we have actually a very strong centre-right in Ireland, and we always have done. If we go back uh, 30 years, about 70% of the electorate uh, were actually voting for parties of the, uh, the, the, the centre-right. Um, and economic, or sorry, political competition in Ireland hasn't tended to take place along the lines of, of left and right. The economic crisis has probably changed that a little bit, but actually the group that came to the forefront were more coming from the, the radical left than the radical uh, the radical right in Ireland, and certainly the, the strength of Sinn Féin um, we can see in there and, and some of the other uh, left-wing groups, they have cornered that particular space and been more effective. They existed already, they were more effective at organising, and some of the issues, if you want, that have mobilised um, kind of the radical right in other countries simply aren't present in the Irish case. So the anti-immigrant sentiment isn't that strong. There, there isn't the same in-group and out-group dynamic that you can use, if you want, uh, to promote that kind e of message. Even though we've had substantial immigration into this country in the last 20 years, you know, as substantial as they've had in the UK. We have, uh, but it has been largely uh, uncontroversial. There's a very interesting piece written quite recently about uh, this that said that actually, when you think about populism, uh, there's a kind of a 
a unifying mantra that we find in a lot of these movements, which is take back control. Uh, and in some countries, that take back control, um, when it's applied on the far right, is about really uh, take up back control of your borders, uh, take up back control from the European Union, um, you know, assert your national identity. So it's a nativist, nationalist take back control. But on the left, it tends to be actually a rejection of austerity. And this is particularly within the European Union. So it's take back control of your fiscal policies, tell those Europeans uh, that we're not making the budgetary cuts. So it, it's really more about the kind of structure of the welfare state, the structure of public finances. Uh, but it, 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 it's a, certainly a, from the left, a, a clear mantra, but it is this unifying theme of, of take back control. So that's more what or, we've seen in Portugal, Spain and Greece uh, rather than in the Central Greece, and yeah, Northern particularly, European So countries. we see Syriza in Greece, uh, you know, we see the emergence of Podemos um, and um, Ciudadanos in, in Spain. So the countries that have been worst affected uh, by the, the financial crisis and by the specific imposition of bailout programs, we've tended to see a kind of a manifestation of, uh, of left-wing populism rather than, uh, than right-wing uh, populism. But the, the left has tended to be present in the longer term, I suppose, in Irish politics to some extent, in that space, albeit it has grown considerably since the economic crisis. It, it, it sure has. Minister, Pat touched earlier on the, on the fact that the election of Donald Trump and the impending Brexit process have created a sort of sense of looming danger for, for us as well, or at least threat or darkened the horizon. And that in that situation, I think, I think it's fair to say he was suggesting we might need to rethink a little bit what our financial plans and strategic plans might be for the country. Yeah, just, just maybe two brief reflections before, before I uh, come back on that. Um, I think, as was said, in different countries, populism can manifest itself in different ways. And we, we've largely had the populism of the left in Ireland rather than the populism of the right. And while there are differences, there are also lots of similarities. You know, uh, opposition to free trade, um, skepticism towards globalization, mistrust of international institutions, um, anti-establishment rhetoric, rhetoric and all that. And, and they're very similar. Sometimes you go so far right, you become left-wing. And there's an element of that uh, in some of the things that we hear in Ireland. Um, one thing that occurred to me as well is that sometimes after a very bad recession or well, logically after a bad recession or a financial crisis, people want to give the system a kicking. But in the early period of the crisis, that tends not to happen. People tend to go for safe change and they tend to move their support to the alternative moderate party, if you like, or the alternative centre party. And we saw that initially in Greece. We certainly have seen that in Ireland uh, and seen it in other places. And it can actually be when when the crisis is over, that people then feel it's safe to register their protest. And I think there's an element of that in what's happening in the world. When the crisis first happened, people, if you like, were too afraid to go for the radical option and went for safe change. But now that the crisis is largely at an end, people feel more comfortable uh, uh, demonstrating a protest vote. One thing I think that's particular about Ireland and something I would have had a very different view on a year or two, two ago is the proliferation of independence. And our electoral system um, is one that's very friendly to independence. I think I read that um, uh, there are more independents in the Irish Parliament than there are in all the other parliaments of Western Europe put together. And that's true. It's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, and that's because our electoral system allows for it. It's like one of those statistics. Yeah, like the yeah, Phoenix Park yeah. is the biggest yeah, city and, park and, in and Europe. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of cross, proud, I kind of cross my mind. This is a terrible thing because we, we we fragmentation in Ireland. But let's say we didn't have that system. Let's say we'd regionalists or a nationalist system. Maybe instead of voting for all those local independents, those people might actually 
have voted for a far right party or a far left party. Because the point has been made. the independents have, have given people an alternative. And, and, and the point has also been made that our electoral system, which is criticised for its clientelism and, mm. and, and various other you know, pro- problems, supposedly, is that uh, it's, it's very difficult to create a political elite in a political system which demands that its representatives be as down and dirty with their constituents in clinics and have to fight for their seats, very often against their own party members. So you don't have a situation as you have in red or blue states in the United States or safe labour seats, so-called safe labour seats in the UK where an MP or a congressman could, will never have to worry about losing their seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I mean, I think that's particularly true. I think one of the, the striking things is there was some research about 20 years ago, uh, and it's been uh, updated, and that is that it's about €500 Euros to run for local elections in Ireland. You, you, you rock up to the local um, uh, returning officer, you have 50 signatures from your neighbours, there you're on the ballot, and about 500 quid will get you a po- couple of posters, good few flyers and leaflets, and you're off. So access to the political system in Ireland is, is, a, is quite open in comparison to, uh, to other countries. The best example that we always give is, is Belgium, the Socialist Party. If you want to run for the Socialists in Belgium, you have to be a member of the party for five years, you have to subscribe to their newspaper for at least two years, your children have to be in public school, and like the list goes on and on for the criteria, to even before you can get before uh, the selection convention to, to run, whereas the Irish political system is particularly open. If you want to run for politics, uh, you can put yourself forward, and at the end of the day, it is the, the, the voters that will decide. And, and that is one of the great strengths of the system, but but there are problems, of course, associated, uh, associated with that as well. We often hear about in relation to the presidential election that we should change the system. Anybody should be able to run. The end consequence of that would be you would go into the polling station and somebody would hand you something akin to a phone book as 4,000 candidates would have put themselves forward for the presidential election. So there are, strengths and <laughs> there are strengths and yeah. weaknesses uh, to, the, uh, to the system, uh, but its openness is, is, a very, uh, is a very strong one. But the one thing I would also add, though, is that Ireland is not immune from what has been happening in the, in the rest of the world. We do have a culture of anti-politics. Uh, there's a sense that the political system is not working for people and trust in institutions has been in decline and actually that that pattern um, uh, accelerated very significantly during the crisis. So trust in politicians, I'm sorry Minister, was never particularly high but trust in Parliament was actually quite high in the Irish case. Trust in the European institutions was uh, was reasonably strong Uh, and we've seen very significant decline. So the citizens are becoming more distant uh, from their political institutions. People people often say, you know, that they are, and they say it more nowadays than they did a couple of years ago for obvious reasons, that they don't trust their politicians or that politicians are all out for themselves. And they speak of politicians in the abstract. But if you ask them about their attitudes to their own local representatives, they tend to, you know, many of them will know them. They've been asked personally for their votes uh, by them. And they have a different sort of relationship with individual politicians from whatever party than they do to the the sort of abstract idea of uh, of politicians or uh, a political class. I mean, I, I was I was writing a little bit um, about what you mentioned uh, uh, recently in the paper, making the point that whatever accusations, you know, one of the, cl- the classic accusations of the populists that the political elite is out of touch with the, uh, uh, with the, uh, you know, the requirements and the demands of, of ordinary people. But, you know, many accusations can be levelled at the average Irish politician, but being out of touch with his constituents, his or her constituents, is not one of them. In fact, you know, uh, um, uh, I think Irish uh, Irish constituents are as likely to be harassed by their uh, politicians looking for votes as uh, politicians are to be harassed by their constituents. To, to what extent is that phenomenon of 
politicians as kind of whipping boys or whipping girls. For, for, how, to what extent, Minister, do you think that's due to changes in the media? By which I mean both the way in which the media has become a more aggressive interrogator, I suppose, of, of politicians, but also also that that kind of meme, if you like, about politicians that are only in it for themselves. They're grubbing around. They're filling their chests, which really, you know, for anybody who knows, kind of the lifestyle of most politicians is not the case. It, how how much does that feed that perception? And also, how much does the move to social media, which is often seen as the source of all ills, particularly by newspapers which are being destroyed by it apparently, but how much does that kind of the way in which discourse and political discourse plays out in so social media, which tends to be very abusive very quickly, affect the way yeah, politicians... I, I'm, I'm in a strange position of having two professions, one, one being a medical doctor and the other being a politician, and, and even though I'm the same person, um, it's just remarkable to me the different attitude that people have to doctors versus politicians, and doctors are still held in very high regard. And people will assume you're telling the truth, assume that you earn your money and, and deserve every penny of it, and probably more, uh, and that you have their best interests at heart. And then in politics, it's obviously the reverse. You don't deserve to earn anything. Uh, you don't have their best interests at heart, and you must be dishonest, um, even though you're the exact same person. And it's just, I suppose, the way the way those different professions have been characterised, one, one unfairly in one direction and the other a little unfairly in the other direction. Um, but... Um, uh, I, I think I think what's different maybe because of social media is just that it's unmediated um, and you know there's generally speaking when it comes to the general media uh, you have to have two sources and all the rest of it whereas of course in social media anyone can broadcast any opinion they like um, and that then leads to uh, I suppose a greater coarseness in, in in discourse which I think is is really unfortunate but it's it's the reality of where we are and you know I'll come across people uh, on Twitter and social media and I'll know exactly who they are and they will meet me and they'll be extremely pleasant in the street and yet I will have exactly remembered what, what they said about me in social media. It's almost like people can be these different people hiding behind their um, their, their avatar or, or, or whatever. Uh, so that's that has just, I think, changed things. But, you know, like these are the realities of how the world develops. Politics changed a lot because of radio. It changed a lot because of television. People often talk about JFK being the first television president, the first one to use TV to speak directly to the people. Um, FDR had the fireside chats, but JFK really used it uh, and was that first kind of, you know, good-looking celebrity um, TV president. Um, Trump is yeah, probably a the good first. role model. Would you say? Nah, I go away now. But, um, but, but what Trump is, what Trump is, is the um, is probably the first Twitter president, the person who can talk over all of the old media, including television, directly to people um, through Twitter, and it's it's um, it's 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 a big change. And you can't roll these things back. You just have to find a way to use them. Let me take you back to Pat's point, if you don't mind, because I think we we wandered away from it in an interesting direction, which is things look like they're going to get tougher. The government has a plan. Does that plan need to be adjusted, and what should it be over the next three years? Yeah, well, we have to be we have to be dynamic and flexible when it comes to changing our plans. You know, definitely this time last year, we didn't anticipate um, a minority government and the instability that comes with that, the election of Trump, or necessarily Brexit. Uh, so there are more downside risks now than there were a year ago. On the plus side, we're in a much better space. Uh, fiscally and economically than maybe maybe we, we, we thought we were. Um, the budget was almost balanced last year, a deficit of one billion, and uh, the national debt has fallen very considerably for a number of reasons. Uh, so, you know, even if there is a slowdown or a downturn throughout 2017, um, I don't think it's necessary, nor do I think it would be advisable uh, to start reining in spending or um, putting up taxes or anything like that. We're actually in a very different position than we were uh, going into the financial crisis or in the financial crisis um, in, in that 
should should things slow down, we would be in a position, uh, I think, to reflate the economy, uh, maybe spend more on the capital side and do things like that uh, to keep things uh, to keep, keep keep the economy economy growing. Interesting enough, though, while there's definite evidence of consumer sentiment falling, retail sales not being great, uh, the employment figures are still very good, and I see them every week because I get them as Minister for Social Protection. Uh, these are unpublished figures, but they're the live register figures on a weekly basis, and unemployment is still falling as fast as it was this time last year. So there's still lots of employment creation, lots of jobs being created, but definitely some evidence that consumers are spending less or deferring spending and investment decisions. Pat, we'll be celebrating, if that's the right word, uh, the anniversary of the general election in a couple of weeks' time. Um, you don't look like you'd be celebrating it yourself. Um, 12 months on, or I suppose seven or eight months on since this government came finally came into shape, is it a government that would be fit for purpose for those kind of challenges over the next three years or so? I have a slightly less uh, optimistic outlook than Leo does uh, about it. I think, you know, going into the financial crisis in uh, 2007, while there was a, you know, a massive imbalance in our, uh, in our budget uh, at that stage, which was clearly, as we know now, vulnerable to a sudden, uh, sudden downturn, we had a, uh, you know, a net debt of like 25% or whatever, whereas now it's somewhere around 100% um, uh, level. So I think the, 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 the wriggle room uh, for us to reflate the, uh, the economy in the event of a downturn, as Leo says, I think is less than uh, it was at that stage. But um, to get away from the dry economics uh, of the question, I think that, I think it's taken some, well, it's been just, you have to think about this, but I think it's taken a while for the government to kind of establish its character. I think there was an initial period last summer where uh, there was a, a, a sense of people, it's certainly outside, but I think also inside government, simply getting used to the novel arrangements. I think the Fine Gael had to get used to the independence, and certainly a number of the independent ministers had to get used to the fact that they were in government now, and that was a lot different uh, to the previous political existence that they had uh, that they had led. One of the things that enabled them to have that settling in period was... Um, uh, a certain fiscal laxity that was afforded to them uh, by uh, by improving um, improving economic growth figures. So the budget was considerably bigger than had been previously advertised, or than the fiscal council had advertised was prudent, and it got bigger right at the very end. The new year has opened, you know, with. Uh, uh, you know, with pressures on public sector pay and the government signalling its willingness to bend on positions of uh, public sector pay, they uh, the the Garda deal before uh, before Christmas, albeit mandated by the Labour Court, will cost 50 million. The knock-on effects of that among the rest of the public service last last week was um, uh, was estimated to cost 150, 120, an additional 120 million over the uh, over the course of the year. My point is not that these are big figures in over. Uh, a budget of, uh, of of 60 billion euros, but that the sign that the government has sent out that it is willing to bend, and I think if the character of this administration has now emerged and solidified, it is that um, uh, whatever about its will, its capacity is limited, and I don't think it could withstand uh, the pressures that 
um, uh, uh, an austerity budget would bring if that is what turns out to be necessary because of dramatic uh, slowdowns in, say, corporation tax revenues or, uh, or anything like that. In a way, you know, we'll have to wait and see how the next couple of months plays out in terms of taxation revenues and that type of thing. But I think this government is a good deal more vulnerable to those sort of external forces than uh, than Leo does. Theresa, what do you think? I mean, I think when, when this government was set up, there were lots of people, many of them in this building, poo-pooing its prospects for survival at all or its ability to do any anything very much. I think, as Pat says, it's achieved a greater stability. But it hasn't achieved that kind of... I'm sure there's a few politics nerds in the room here who watched all the episodes of Borgen. It hasn't achieved that kind of, you know, Danish model of a new approach to government of multiple coalitions and more cooperation. No, but I, I think I'd probably start by saying minority governments work in other countries. So as a model, there is no reason to believe that it can't be adapted in the Irish case um, it's not our first minority government, but it's the first one we've had, which is really significantly short. It's definitely of the first a, one with Shane Ross in it. Uh, well, <laughs> certainly, no doubt he would pose a challenge anywhere. But but we'd also have to say, though, the coalition governments have been unstable over the years, and coalition governments have struggled to deal with significant um, uh, with significant challenges and crises when they throw themselves up. Challenges and crises are problematic, no matter what kind of government you you have. Maybe they are more difficult with a minority government. Certainly, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't say that. I would also add as well that our understanding is our, sorry, our expectation is that this minority government probably won't run much beyond 2018 and could uh, could roll back uh, sooner than then. It very much will depend on the nature of the challenge or the crisis when it arises and whether or not there is internal division within the government. So we've had some challenges along the way. Uh, the Apple tax ruling was fairly awkward uh, when it happened but the government was able to agree a coherent internal position uh, and move on, from, uh, move on from there. Brexit when it occurred was also a little bit unexpected um, and again government have some a strategy in place and they're they're moving on now when the rubber hits the road so to say and we start to see things coming out of the negotiations that are maybe not in Ireland's interests it will be more difficult but I don't think it's it's impossible I don't think we should start with the presumption that a minority government is incapable of addressing uh, those well, kinds of challenges. Well whatever about the shape of the government itself uh, Minister if I were arriving in a time travel machine from from January 2016 landing in here today and looked around at the landscape the next two years of Brexit negotiations the trailing of Article 50 in March the, the other the other international crises one thing I would want is I'd want to know who was going to be steering the ship over the next two to three to four years. And one of the things we're aware of is that uh, the current Taoiseach has said that he won't stand in the next election. Lots of people, including Theresa, I think, just suggested that 2018, 2019 is probably a reasonable length of time frame for this government. Should Fine Gael not get its act together and sort out who's going to be leading it through this entire period? That was the tricky question I was going to ask you first at the start. It won't go be a past history. Well, Finnegal has his act together. It has a leader. Um, the leader is Enda Kenny. He's our Taoiseach. It's not that long ago that he got a renewed mandate from our parliamentary party and a mandate from, uh, from, the, from the Dáil to, to, uh, to continue as Taoiseach. And I think particularly... Uh, the fact that he does have about six years of experience as Taoiseach attending European Council meetings uh, is a real asset in, in, in the Brexit negotiations over the next couple of years. Um, but I think, as Michael Noonan said only the other day, uh, he predicted that it would be six years minimum um, to negotiate Brexit and the new arrangements. 
uh, for our relationship with Britain and to Kenny you said it'd be eight years so there's a distinct possibility so that, that bring him up be... to the age of 74 75 no it's a distinct possibility it's actually a certainty that within the next six, six years there'll be at least one more general election you know so things are going to change in, in Irish politics and you've turnovers of uh, governments and prime ministers across Europe you know we've new prime ministers for example in uh, in France and Italy um, now um, there'll be a new president of France soon no people are assuming Angela Merkel's going to win the elections in Germany I don't think that assumption should be made um, already Martin Schulz is matching her in terms of popularity ratings that might be just because he's new, but, but who knows. Uh, and what we have to do, I think, particularly when, um, when we're approaching Brexit, uh, is uh, to be led by the Taoiseach, but to have a whole-of-government approach, to have um, the government very much involved, probably to the opposition involved a bit too, maybe a little more than we do at the moment. Uh, and then um, what's crucial is our people on the ground, the ambassadors, the diplomats, uh, all doing their part during this, this, this difficult period. Pat? Well... Uh, <laughs> I think a leadership change will come uh, in Fine Gael long before Brexit is concluded, long before the two-year uh, expiry date that will begin. Um, that will begin when Article 50 is uh, uh, is, is triggered at the end at the end of March. That not an especially penetrating piece of political analysis. My sense uh, is that there is a growing impatience in Fine Gael, but there's a couple of roadblocks in the way before there is. Uh, a change of leadership. And I think the first of them is that the, the, if you think of Fine Gael's conception of itself, which is important in things like leadership elections because a certain amount of it is introspective to the party, Fine Gael's conception of itself is uh, defined against their characterization of Fianna Fáil, which is that of the party that has always, uh, you know, looked out for itself. Their view of Fine Gael is the party that has always done the right thing by, uh, by the country. So I think to effect a change of leadership, barring end of waking up in the morning and deciding, in fact, this, I've had enough of it. Um, That's uh, not going to happen, is it? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I think that what the party will have to do, and this will have to be led by those who might be leader, uh, is that it will have to demonstrate that it is in the national interest rather than simply the interests of Fine Gael. Uh, to look at Fine Gael's narrow self-interest, it is clearly in their interests to change uh, the leader now. And again, he's not a particularly good election campaigner. The party is uh, periodically half paralyzed uh, by the notion that Fine Gael is going to, or Fianna Fáil is going to pitch them into a general election and they will either have to have a rapid process to change uh, the leader while Fianna Fáil are talking about, uh, uh, talking about the election, Fine Gael will be talking about itself, or horror of horrors, they would have to go into the election with Enda, uh, with Enda as leader. So. I, I, I think what Fine Gael will have to do is to construct for itself a believable case. It may not have to be believable for the rest of us, but it will have to be internally coherent and believable for Fine Gael that it is in the national interest for them to change, uh, to change the leader. Interestingly, I've heard a couple of suggestions uh, around the House uh, about that just in recent days and weeks, and it goes along the lines of because Brexit is going to be a long, drawn-out process, 
we need to have a new leader in place for the start of those negotiations rather than changing it halfway through, changing, uh, uh, changing jockeys halfway through. And uh, I think that that is perhaps an argument that we will hear a little more of uh, over the coming months. Who are we likely to hear it from? Top sources. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Theresa, I would have thought any able politician can look into their soul and divine that their self-interests are exactly parallel with the best needs of the country at any at, at, at I the don't right think time, you'd be they? a good politician if you couldn't do that. Indeed. I'm not sure where you would be going uh, with the uh, with the electorate. I think specifically in relation to Fine Gael, one of the interesting things is if you look at their electoral performance over the last number of years, it, it very much ties into what Pat was saying. Uh, Fianna Gael doesn't do well uh, when it goes before the electorate uh, selling Fianna Fáil's new clothes. Uh, so in 2002, when it went into the uh, election, compensating people uh, for all kinds of economic failings, offering a generous set of policies, um, it was going to, it was really Fianna Fáil uh, light. And to some extent, it was kind of tax cuts all around going into 2016. Uh, it was going to be rolling back on austerity. And it's it's not the perception the public seems to have of Fianna Gael. Fianna or for when things get uh, very difficult, uh, they'll be the ones who, with some degree of zealous uh, enthusiasm, uh, will cut the uh, pension for the uh, for the uh, sorry the over 65, uh, and they'll make the very difficult uh, going back to the 1920s. Yeah, and yeah, it's a perception that. of Finnegale <laughs> that they are they are suited now, but, uh, to austerity. Uh, so if Finnegale is going to engage in a kind of introversion um, and a period of reflection, one of the things that they have to do is to position themselves. And that's much more tricky now than it was in the past because of what we actually started talking about earlier in terms of the politics of the centre-left and the centre-right. And uh, Really, all of these parties have come much more clustered together. And it was often very difficult to tell the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. And if we even look at the structure of TV debates when they happen now, uh, the Fianna Gael and the Fianna Fáil person will sit together on one side in the primetime studio and the opposition will come from uh, somebody in Sinn Féin or an independent. So even how we perceive of of the sides of Irish politics, that has changed in the last 20 years. Uh, so for, for Fine Gael, yes, there is a question about their, their leader, but there's also a question of where they're going and what they're offering. But I'd also add, actually, Fianna Fáil faced the same challenge. I wouldn't assume uh, that they're, they're going to also be able to kind of traverse the same, uh, same road of, of old. All centrist parties are facing these challenges of what they stand for uh, and how they project themselves and sell themselves to the electorate. And that's a real question, isn't it, Leo, which is that we've been talking about the leadership of this country largely in sort of managerial terms for, for, for most of this discussion over the last, the last 45 minutes or so. But the question of what is the vision of Fine Gael or in a more corporate sense, what is the brand of Fine Gael? Uh, perhaps, you know, has that changed over the years or does it need to change again and what should that vision be for the future? Uh, well, of course it's changed because the world changes uh, across the decades and what Fine Gael's would have represented in the 30s when we were founded would obviously be very different. No, but for a specific example, because Kevin Connaughton, we've got some questions from the audience, and he asks, is it really sensible to uh, continue to plan to phase out USC over the next five years? And that was a, you know, that was a very central plank of Fine Gael's policy only a year ago. Uh, it, it was, and it remains, remains the case, um, provided, of course, it, it's, uh, it's affordable, and anything that we committed to do in the years ahead is based on the economy continuing to rec recover and continuing to grow. And so long as it does, uh, we'll do that. But what even, even though say, a lot of economists from you know different different perspectives are very critical of it, yeah, they they are, and you know they have their reasons for that. And it's more around 
the broadness of the tax base in that case than, than the Indeed. actual level, level of taxation. Um, and what was in our manifesto, bear in mind, was an expansion of PRSI. And I'm somebody who really believes in the social insurance system. It's uh, you know a tax you pay or a payment you make that has a very clear return for it. Uh, and what was also in our manifesto was uh, widening PRSI. So it was never as simple as just abolishing the USC. What was also there um, was widening PRSI uh, and including um, bringing in more from PRSI, obviously, but also extending more benefits connected to PRSI. And we've done that already with paternity benefit. Some of the benefits that are now being brought in for the self-employed, and I think that may be, uh, may be an option for us into the future. But to answer your question, while policies do change, there are core eternal Finnegale values, and they're up there uh, on the wall of our party of our party room. You know, things like reward, things like enterprise, security and law and order, um, integrity, these sort of concepts and values that are that are there. Um, and I think Treats is right. That's actually probably when we do best as, as a party when we're true to ourselves. I, I think just picking up on that, I think that is one of the other things that any uh, any leadership candidates will need to do over uh, o- over the next period is to lay out some sort of a vision, not just for the party, but for uh, for the country. It's not simply you know picking somebody, even though it's maybe the primary thing in the minds of TDs. It's not simply picking somebody uh, you know to to put on a put a picking a face to put on posters for the next election. It's actually they uh, they. The choice that they will make about the next leader of Fine Gael is something that the, the country as a whole has a stake in because it's picking somebody who may uh, uh, who may be the next the next Taoiseach. And I think that the bit that is missing in uh, in, in in the kind of slow bicycle race of the Fine Gael leadership campaign, such as it is uh, uh, going on, at least in the minds of political journalists so far, is that sort of expostulation of the values of the party and the future direction of the country. And I think they will have to start doing that. Yeah, but come on, Pat. If, 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 if any of us who may potentially be candidates uh, for a vacancy whenever it arises start doing that, you know exactly how it will be written up by the... Uh by the true, political journalists, I, so we're all avoid, avoiding getting into that space. Uh, but true, but I, I, I think you were on record uh, at some stage in the not-too-distant past as saying um, when, when you went to the toilet, it was interpreted by some people as a uh, political move towards securing the leadership. So uh, that, 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 being, that, that being the case, uh, a few meaty speeches, I suggest, wouldn't go uh, out of place, be they delivered in the toilet or not. By the way, the toilet is just there on the left, outside, uh, outside the door. Can I put a question uh, which came from the audience to you, to you Theresa, and also to, to, to you, Minister? And really, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but essentially what it's saying is that is, is the lack of diversity or the way in which political parties don't reflect the modern Irish population, is that divorcing, is that contributing to the divorcing of or a disconnection between the population and political parties? Because political parties seem much less rooted now, much less solid than, than, than it seems to me that they were maybe a generation ago. Well, I'd say two things. I would agree with your last statement, which is that the the base of political parties, the kind of ideological affiliation uh, that people had to political parties certainly has weakened very considerably, although in the case of Ireland it probably was never as strong as it was in a lot of other uh, European uh, countries, so party attachment tended to be lower in Ireland. But in relation to the idea that political parties don't actually reflect or represent um, the, the, the public at large, actually I would challenge that quite substantially because one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years is that the 
the kinds of candidates who are putting themselves forward and the kinds of people being elected are actually coming from much more diverse backgrounds. So one of the things that I was doing um, after the election was looking at the candidates who ran for the 2016 election. And we very often break them down by a kind of a broad categorization of occupations, for example. Um, so the, the higher, the professions still tend to dominate in terms of, of where people come from. But we're seeing far fewer farmers coming into politics and a great many more people coming in from um, what would be kind of seen as a kind of uh, traditional kind of blue collar um, uh, employments. So lots of people with backgrounds in retail and manufacturing. So a much more diverse group of people put themselves forward for election um, this year. Uh, and the other, I think, point that you have to layer in there, of course, is the fact that we had gender quotas for the first time ever. So uh, all of the main political parties actually reached their target and 30% of the candidates um, that went before uh, the electorate from the, the parties were women. And what's very interesting about the gender quotas is that even amongst independents where, where the gender quotas didn't apply, they had a kind of a spillover uh, effect and many more women actually contested the election um, as independents this time, this time around. So if anything, the dynamic of the last five years tells us that actually politics is much more reflective of a broader cohort of, uh, of society. So that's good news on class, <coughs> excuse me, and on gender, but um, um, I don't see a lot of people from uh, who weren't born in Ireland representing uh, rep- representing the Irish voters. And, no, but uh, and they, they account for fifteen percent or so of the population, as I understand it, over ten. There is anyway. so movement in that direction. There was some interesting work um, done recently. It was published in Irish Political Studies, um, showing uh, that there has been an increase in the number of people from the Polish community. It slipped back a little actually in twenty fourteen, but they can only, um, or sorry, it's much easier for people who've come to to run at local elections uh, because they're entitled to vote in local and European elections. It's not until they become Irish citizens that they can. Um, they can uh, vote at European, or sorry, that they can vote at general elections. So, as a as a general rule, what we find is the kind of new communities tend to begin at local level, quite like uh, everybody uh, everybody else. And we have seen some people coming through. Uh, probably, we need to see more effort on behalf of the political parties in terms of their outreach uh, to make that a little bit uh, a little bit more effective. But I wouldn't. I mean, there's more that could be done, uh, and there's more that certainly should be done. But I, I wouldn't take a, a, an entirely negative view actually. I think it's one of the spaces where Irish politics is moving in the right direction. In terms of the relationship between the political parties, Minister, we, uh, we actually had Mary Lou MacDonald in for our regular weekly podcast yesterday, and she was she seemed to shift her position a little bit on what their position would be on the circumstances in which they would go into government. Has Fine Gael shifted its position on whether it would go into government with Sinn Féin? Yeah, well, I should say we do, of course, have one, one member of Cabinet who wasn't born in Ireland in, in Catherine's opponent. So um, I don't remember the last time we had somebody who was um, a migrant uh, in, 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 in our government. Not, not really a migrant, though. <laughs> no, no, you know, it wasn't really a migrant. She's a genuine migrant. And of course, in, in my case, obviously, I, I come from a mixed race background and we have two, two Protestants, two members of the LGBT community, and uh, more women than, than, than in previous cabinets. So there is a bit more diversity there, definitely not enough. And I know in my own party, it's looking a lot younger. And um, we have a lot more. It's women. just that you're getting older, as well. It is. It is younger, and um, and we, we have more women. And uh, we actually discussed this yesterday. And one of the women who was recently elected to the Dáil, um, you know, said very frankly that the reason why she got the nomination was because of the quota system. But she'd hoped she'd proven that she was every bit as capable as being in TD as anyone else, and she has. Uh, and that's really for us now as a party to go out and find more good candidates who are more diverse, who are female, who are young, who come from uh, different backgrounds. Um, sorry, what was the question you asked? Mary Lou MacDonald. 
Oh yeah, well, uh, yeah. Well, I don't think that was a modifying addition. Um, uh, Sinn Féin is an unbe- unbelievably well-disciplined political organisation that almost resembles an army on occasion. Uh, and uh, I, I wouldn't say that wasn't said without it being planned. Um, and therefore, it was a very significant move because Sinn Féin's previous position was that they would they would only enter coalition to lead a, lead it. And now they're saying that they would be. Uh, the junior or second party in a coalition. So you're definitely seeing the potential there for uh, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin uh, to form uh, 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 a potential future coalition. I'm not sure that that answers Um, my question. And and Fine Gael being the the alternative to that. And there's a lot of similarities between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin in in policy and in in background history as well. I I did an interview with, I would like the Sinn Féin Times this week, I did an interview with Gerry Adams yesterday, which will be in tomorrow's paper, but seeing as we're all subscribers here and nobody's nobody's listening, I'll give you a sneak peek that Gerry Adams certainly does not contradict that position uh, adopted by Mary Lou MacDonald uh, yesterday, which suggests that this is not uh, an accident. But what I suppose we'd be interested in learning is what your, uh, never mind uh, your analysis of the similarities between themselves and uh, and Fianna Fáil, which uh, may may very well be the case. But is a a Sinn Féin, a Fine Gael coalition, from your point of view, out of the question? I can't see it. I wouldn't seek a mandate for it. And I think our policies are so far apart that uh, it wouldn't be possible. What I do know, though, going into the last general election uh, is, uh, if I remember correctly, we ruled out um, coalition with Fianna Fáil and subsequently offered a coalition with them. And uh, we ruled out dealing with any independents and ended up dealing with quite a few of them. Um, so uh, I, I now know that we are a democracy, if I didn't realise that before. And it's actually the public and the people who will decide uh, the make of the next government, but absolutely do not envisage uh, and would not seek uh, a mandate to form a coalition with Sinn Féin. The Chief Whip, of course, recently said that there was a number of like completely amazing people in Sinn Féin. I remember exactly what she said about it. That's a, oh, yeah, really a bit, amazing. A, Is that what she said? That's a bit different, than saying, that's a bit different than saying that, saying you'd like to form a government with them or would seek a mandate for it. And uh, I just don't see that happening. All right, on that slightly downbeat note, we shall leave it there. Listen, thanks very much to Theresa Reedy, to Leah Radker, and Pat Leahy for joining us. And thanks very much indeed for coming along this evening. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producers, Jennifer Ryan and Declan Condon. Thanks also to JJ Vernon, who was on the desk. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back same time, same place next week.